Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this concludes uh, the suspense that the Holy Spirit has held us in for the last nine chapters. You remember back in chapter 12 of Genesis that Abraham, who was called Abram at that time, uh, was called out of his father's homeland, his homeland, his father's household, and he packed up his entire life and he left all on the promise that God would make of him a great nation. Now, as is obvious, I suppose, and was obvious to Abraham, this is a promise that can't be fulfilled, can't be accomplished without the gift of a child. No child, no no offspring, no nation. And so Abraham would have understood that this promise depended on him and Sarah's ability to conceive and give birth to a son. Now, when Abraham was 75 and Sarah, his wife, 65, this promise, when it came, was something of a stretch. Here's some statistics from um, modern history about uh, age as it relates to birth. The oldest mother on record to bear a child naturally, that is, without the help of in vitro fertilization technology, is an unnamed English woman back in 1887 who was 62 and a half years old. That's amazing, 62 and a half years old, conceived and gave birth to a child. Now, with the help of modern technologies like in vitro fertilization, um, that's changed the game a bit. There's a 70-year-old woman in India who, as far as I know, is still alive, although she almost died, but she gave birth at the age of 70 after conceiving um, through this, the help of this technology. The oldest father on record is an, an, an Indian man who is 96 So it, it's, it's not impossible for, to, to imagine a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman conceiving and giving birth to a child, it, it's, though it's very improbable, right? It does exceed, our, by our, our, our modern record-keeping, anything that's yet happened, really. Um, but it was not God's plan to give Sarai an improbable child. It was God's plan to give Sarah... An, an impossible, a miracle child. 
why do I highlight the change of their names? Well, just that it indicates how much time elapsed. There was a lot of life that got lived in that time. Um, and that name signifies that, that 25 years of time that elapsed from the giving of the promise to the, the accomplishment of it. So at the age of nine, Abraham was 99 and Sarah 89 or 90 when they conceived Isaac. And this, is, this, moves, this moves the probabilities from improbable to impossible, right? But God is the God of the impossible. There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. And in order to glorify himself and to instruct Abram and Sarah in their faith, he waited until Abraham was, as it says in Scripture, as good as dead. And Sarah... Her womb was dead. It says she considered the deadness of her womb in, Ro- in Romans before he delivered on his promise to bless them with children. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, for starters, we learn that God delights to delay in giving his, the fulfillment of his promises. He delays in fulfilling his promises. He delights to do it. This is the way he works. It shouldn't surprise us. God loves to come through at the last second. He loves the surprise ending. So we judge God as being slow in fulfilling his promises, but we know that he's not slow because scripture says that he's not slow. It says the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. But our experience of it is that it does take longer than we'd like often for him to come through in fulfilling his promises to us. But this shouldn't surprise us. The life of faith, the life of godliness, is a life of learning to be comfortable with, learning to accept, learning to be content with delayed gratification. This is what, what else does faith mean than that? Delayed gratification is, is central to the Christian life. It says, Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This basic delayed gratification. You can have a little bit now, or you can wait and have a lot. First John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So we live here down below, trusting God, but not knowing what we will be when he appears. We're waiting for something. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The Christian life is learning to embrace delayed gratification. This is the essence of godliness. We plow, but we plow in hope. We don't, we haven't, we don't see the produce of our, our, of our work. We plant, we tend, we wait. This teaches us, though, this, this account of Sarah teaches us how far we are from trusting God. God is often pleased to withhold from us the good that we ask of him or even the good that he's promised to us. And one of the reasons he does this is why? To expose to us our own lack of faith. 
That's one of the principal reasons that he withholds his promises is so that we will see how far we have to come in trusting him. All of our life depends on trusting God and taking our delight and our whole joy in him. And he, te- he has to teach us to do this. All along it was to Abraham that the Lord spoke his word, right? He, he gave his promises to Abraham. But here when it comes to the fulfillment of the promises, notice that it deals the text deals with Sarah. In verse 1, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Now why is the Holy Spirit focusing on Sarah? Well, he's calling to mind Sarah's former unbelief. Remember when the angel came and, and visited with Abraham and she was overhearing in the tent? It says she, she laughed to herself saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And we know that this is unbelief, cynicism on her part because she's rebuked for it. And this clearly calls to mind with just the fact that it's focusing here on Sarah when the promise is delivered on. uh, We we, we remember Sarah's doubt about it. And that's especially evident from the fact that God is so evident or or, um, what's the word? Emphatic here. Did you notice that in the text? He's, it's constantly saying, the Lord did for Sarah as he said, as he had promised. It's over and over in the text. The pur- purpose of this repetition is to highlight Sarah's former doubt. It's as if the Lord was saying to her, I told you so. Just like I said, Sarah. And Sarah herself seems to acknowledge the connection to her doubt with a play on words. In verse 6, she says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And so Sarah is, uh, is connecting these things. She, she remembers her laughter. She's now laughing with joy. And she, I think she's indicating the connection there. And she, uh, It's as if she's saying, yes, okay, Lord, I receive your rebuke. I understand myself better. I know that you are good and faithful. I've tasted of your kindness and your mercy, and I'm, I, I'm, I point taken. And how much like Sarah are we? God holds out to his, us his, his precious promises, and if even for a moment he delays in gratifying them or fulfilling them to us, we are ready to laugh in his face. That's when Sarah laughed after some years had passed and it hadn't come true. And now she's getting beyond improbable to impossible in her age. And she laughs at God. We're just like this. Just like this all the time. If, if even for just for a moment, God withholds something good from us that we think that, well, that, we did, that we want or that we think he's promised us, even if for a moment, and we're ready to turn tail and run. We're full of doubt, suspicion, cynicism, unbelief. This is who we are. And then he comes through with his promises, and what do we do? Well, we wonder that we could have ever doubted God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he sure taught me. I mean, this is, I hear this out of your mouth. This, I experience this myself. This is, this is us. But this is not as we should be, is it? This is not how we should live. We should be filled with faith, and trust, and we should learn to wait on the Lord. Out of our doubt comes the kind of grasping for things that Sarah was guilty of when she gave Hagar 
This was her solution to the, the dilemma of, of God delaying. She gave Hagar to her husband, Abram, in hopes that she would get um, a child through Hagar that she could claim as her own. And that's how God would fulfill his promise to her. Sarah would make it so. And we're not going to get to it today, but the very next verses after this passage show all the heartache and the trouble of that decision on her part. We must learn to wait on God, not get ahead of God, not grasp for things, even good things that he's promised us. We have to wait on him. This is how, this is the life he's given us to lead. He loves us. And we also see how stupid we are for doubting. And he wants us to see that in this passage with, this, with the emphatic repetition of all of these, just as he said, as he commanded, in the time that he appointed, it came to pass. God is called in scripture what? A God who cannot lie. When he says something will come to pass, it comes to pass. So let's not be faithless Let's not be unbelieving, but believing and learn to trust the Lord and learn to wait upon him. Before we move on from Sarah, though, there's another application from her laughter that we need to make. And it's a very obvious one, but today we live in a day that the obvious things don't go said and they need to be said. What is it? Sarah laughs when she's getting a baby, or she got a baby and she laughs. And it's not the, it's not the laughter of when she was in the tent and unbelieving, what is it? If you're going to say the obvious thing about it, what would you say? The baby made Sarah happy. A baby makes a woman happy. Husbands, do you want your wives to be happy? Do you want your wives to be happy? What is a woman when she gets pregnant? It's just, you see this played out in the movies. You, I've seen it in my home with, with Jenna. You've seen it in your home. A woman gets pregnant. She comes to her husband. She tells him she's pregnant. What's in her face? A kind of reserved, anxious enthusiasm, but she's withholding something. What is she waiting for? Why is she nervous? Why is she anxious? She's waiting for you, husband, to give her permission to be happy. That's what she's waiting for. And the way you give her permission to be happy is how? Being happy. Husbands are very potent things. And you stand, your wife's happiness um, in children, which is natural and God-given, an inevitable thing, stands or falls on your own happiness in children. We live in such an evil day, such a perverse day. Um, I wanted to read to you something that our president said that sums up, it's nothing particularly negative about him, although it is negative, but it just reflects the thinking of our day. So he's defending abortion rights, unregulated abortion rights, uh, 
And the way he defends it is through his daughter. And he says, we have to have unregulated free access to abortion at any stage in the development of a, of, of a child because I don't want my daughter to be punished with a baby. What does that mean? What's, what's behind that? Well, what's behind that is that the, the, the lie, we believe, as a society, is that a, the way a woman finds fulfillment and joy and happiness in life is through achievement, creative achievement, or some enterprise, some success, some work outside of her home. That's how she becomes happy. That's how she becomes fulfilled. That's how she finds herself and her purpose in the world. That's how. And I can't have my daughter held back in that pursuit, being punished because of some biological reality. And so we have to, be, we have to, we have to allow these children to be killed for the sake of a mother's happiness. That's so contrary to the scriptures. But that is the air we breathe today. You've sucked it in, men and women, that this is the way in which women find fulfillment and happiness. But it is contrary to God's revealed will. I was re- the article about the woman who's 70, she's an Indian woman, she gave birth to a little girl named Naveen. And the article about her um, said this. It implied that she was pressured, unfortunately pressured, into the life-threatening decision to get pregnant because there's a stigma in her culture against barrenness. Now, if there's a stigma in her culture against barrenness, that's wrong. Because God has given some women the burden of being childless. And he's done that for his own glory, for his own secret purposes, and for the good of those women. And we must love them and not, not increase their pain at being childless. Right? But if there's a stigma in her culture, that is much better than what we have here. What do we have here? There's a stigma against children, against fruitfulness. That's the reality we live in. And she's only seeking to fulfill what is a natural, God-given desire in her life, which is to have a child. And you hear the in the tone of the, uh, the one writing the article, you hear the condense, con, con, I always want to say condensation, but it's condescension. <laughs> well, it is like a wet blanket. You hear, you hear the condescension, and you hear this sort of nervous sense of, oh, I'm glad I don't live in such a backward world, or backward place, backward culture. I'm glad I'm progressive, and that I have the freedom to find fulfillment like any man. Can we all agree in the abstract, at least, that a creature who is made for, to fulfill a certain function is most happy and satisfied when fulfilling that function? Does that just make sense in the abstract? For, take women out of the equation. Doesn't that make sense? 
Husbands, do you want your wife to be happy? Sarah's just responding naturally to the gift of a child, the way a woman wants to respond to the gift of a child. And why don't women today respond in this way? Because men, we don't want the burden of children. That's why. We don't want the burden of children. So we rob millions of women of the joy of motherhood. We do it before she comes to us to tell us she's pregnant. We distribute the pill. That's how we do it. And we, ex- we communicate constantly our, well, hatred of children, of the responsibilities that they bring into our lives. We make it clear to our girlfriends that we want to go so far and we want certain privileges and things from her, but we don't want that. We communicate to our wives, honey, I just, I want to spend five years of really getting to know you before we have, you know, lose all of our fun. (laughs) Boy, you do lose fun. There's no doubt about that. I've been thinking about that a lot. No offense, Paloma, you just shut your ears. (laughs) 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 But you gain fun. Oh my, oh my. And they're short ears. This is something that um, Pastor Bailey's been saying to at least the pastors. I don't know if he set it up in the pulpit or, or to you all any time recently, but these years of, of childbearing are so short. And you spend most of your life after it. A lot of fun to be had. And when you have real mo- more, much more money to do it, generally, anyway. Uh, fathers and husbands, it's your job to protect the, f- the, the joy of children, to protect your wife's natural joy of children. And it's in how you, it, you first have to take joy in them, take delight in what God calls good and what he calls a blessing. You have to care for them. You have to, you have to show your commitment to ca- helping care for and tend these little ones. It's hard work, especially as they start piling up. (laughs) It's hard work. And if you're distant and, well, that's your responsibility, that's another way in which you rob your wife of joy because that's too much placed on her. You, You show your joy to her and children and make it safe for her to take joy by helping her in this work. It's really your work that she's helping you in. And that's clear in many parts of Scripture, but even in this passage it says she bore, her, she bore to Abraham Isaac. It's Abraham's son that she bore to him. Just a little bit of fun as an aside. Jenna, I brought home Luther's commentary last night on this passage and was reading through it and uh, found something amusing to me that I hadn't thought of. Jenna, of course, said she had thought of it and that I was an idiot. Um, so when, he, when Sarah's laughing in this passage, 
he says there's a double meaning in it. After saying a lot of the things I've already said, he goes, and goes on to say that he says there's a kind of like embarrassed sense that she means this laughter, that when it says people will laugh with me, he says you could translate it laugh at me. And, then I, and I'm still like, well, why? Why? <laughs> and it's because she's 90 and he's 99. That's why. And people will be like, I know what happened, (laughs) is what he says. Men will laugh at me. This is spoken figuratively, that is. They'll condemn me as a lustful old woman. (laughs) People in in previous generations were so free. Think of all the things we can't say today. It's a sad world we live in. Let's move on to Abraham. With Abraham in this passage, we see that the fulfillment of God's promise led to further obedience on his part. In obedience to the Lord's commands, which he had given previously, Abraham names his son Isaac, the name God had given him, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. Well, just generally, it doesn't go without saying. Whenever we see an Old Testament saint fulfilling God's word, obeying God. It doesn't go without saying that this is not them earning God's favor. Abraham was in covenant with God. God, as an act of his own free mercy and grace, had reached down and picked Abraham out, a man who was his enemy and ignorant of God and was not even seeking after God. God reached down and drew him out of many waters, as the psalm says, and made him his child, adopted him as his son, and all of his family, all of his household with him. He established his covenant with him. And the basis of Abraham's righteousness before God was what? It wasn't that he had been willing to trust God and, and leave his his homeland. It wasn't that he had given Lot the best choice of the best land. What was it? It was that he believed God and God credited to him that faith, that belief, that trust in him as righteousness. It's by faith that Abraham was converted, joined to God, justified, made right before God. That's how Abram attained his righteous standing before God. God gave him faith to believe. Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. And the works that Abraham performs are just the natural outflow of that transformation in his life of God reaching down and saving him. And that's how it works in our lives. That's how it's supposed to work in a Christian's life anyway. Is that we are saved by grace through faith and the natural and, and that justification that saving of our of our soul will always out itself in works of obedience it declares itself to be there to have happened and that's one of the ways we can know that we are converted that we know the lord jesus that we've trusted in him is because we see god performing through us 
obedience, giving us obedience that flows out of our, our, our understanding, our knowledge of what God has done for us. So this is Abraham and, how, and as how we should understand his obedience here. The first thing he did was he named his son Isaac. Abraham named his son Isaac the name that God appointed for Isaac before his conception. This is, Isaac is the only patriarch Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who doesn't undergo a name change. And the reason is because God chose his name even before he was conceived. And as you'd expect, and with a name that's chosen by God, the name is not arbitrary. What does Isaac mean? It means he laughed. It's, a, it's like an it's a, a abbreviation of a more formal God laughed, but it's in the informal sense here, and it, therefore it's ambiguous. Who's laughing? He laughed. That's what the name means. And that could mean, did you know actually Abraham laughed as well when he heard that God was going to give him Isaac? He laughed too back in the day. But when God laughs in Scripture, what is it, what's it always in reference to? It's in reference to all of us peons down here thinking we can do things without him. That's when God laughs, he laughs at us. He mocks us. He's like, ha, 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 what do you think you're doing? Trying to go around me. Trying to pretend like I don't exist. That's how God laughs, and that's referred to here in this, in this name. What else is, is pointed to? Well, of course, Abraham's laughter, Sarah's laughter, as those who had tried to go around God and had doubted him and had, had been raging with the nations at times against the Lord, Sarah especially. And so here's a very pertinent name. What does it point up? It points up the sins of the family. And it teaches them a, something very important about God and how he views his people when they are walking not by faith but by sight. So what do we learn from that? Well, names matter. You should consider carefully the names that you give to your children and why. Well, because it's a wonderful opportunity all through their life to teach them about God and about themselves. And there's many, many names out there that can do this work. You have examples in Scripture of saints who both succeeded and failed in many ways. And those names are a, an entry point of working with your children to instruct them about the Lord and about themselves. So be careful how you name your children. That's one application from this. Abraham named his son Isaac, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. Who wants to name their child? He laughed and forever immortalize the failures of yourself and your wife. But Abram did it as the Lord commanded. Um, then what did he do? He circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. This one's a lot more difficult even than naming your son after your sin. Because it's not like it is at Bloomington Hospital where I can put the baby in the nice little cart they provide and the nurse can wheel him down the hall and out of sight, out of mind. And Jenna and I can take a nap, you know. And they come back and, he's, and the nurse says, well, here, do this and do this to take care of it for the next couple of weeks. 
Abraham picked up a knife. Probably everybody was around because this had religious significance. And he wounded his baby, his child whom he loved, his only son. Why on earth would why on earth would God appoint such a, a bloody, violent symbol of his commitment to his people and of their belonging to him? Well, where does sin come from? How do, where do we inherit it from? It comes from Adam, right? Our federal head. Through a process or a principle of headship and responsibility, Adam fell and plunged all of us into a state of sin and rebellion against God. And it's through Adam, which means it's through the heads of households that this is passed down. Not genetically, but spiritually in a sense of responsibility. Men are responsible, and it's men who pass on original sin to their descendants. And this, so this is very pertinent. In order to be saved, in order to be born again, what has to happen? That sin has to be taken care of. That problem has to be solved. And God solves it spiritually for his children, and he symbolizes it very pertinently in the cutting off of the flesh of the male sex organ. And it, remi- it stood as a, on one hand as a reminder of both of the need for cleansing of sin, a removal of sin of the flesh, but also of where sin comes from and how it's dealt with in, by God. So God establishes a covenant with, his, with Abram and his household, and that's a spiritual covenant, is a relationship between God and Abraham, and he gives this symbol, which is a frightening symbol, a humbling symbol, but a very instructive one, to teach Abraham about sin and his need to be cleansed and all his household. So not, a very, not an easy thing to do, to pick up your child and wound him in that way, but that was what God had commanded, and so Abraham did it. Now, of course, you understand that circumcision doesn't mean for us today what it meant for Abraham. In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. And that's not to denigrate its role in the Old Testament. It was very instructive for that time, but God has replaced it with better signs. And it's replaced today, not, we can argue about how much of a correspondence between circumcision and baptism there is, but it's substantially the same thing. They both point to the need for a cleansing, a washing, a removal of sin. And they both symbolize the admittance of someone into a covenant relationship with God. And so it's been replaced today, to some degree, by baptism. Now here's the question, and in the, in the passage that we come to next, we see the reality very clearly, very painfully, that in the covenant, among the circumcised, there are those who are circumcised in their flesh and in their heart, and those who are circumcised only in their flesh. And God talks about this reality that not all Israel are Israel. And he says in Deuteronomy that, that 
he says to, through Moses to the people, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is the essential thing. This circumcision of the heart or the way we'd refer to it today as baptized Christians, the, the internal inward baptism, the cleansing from sin inwardly of our hearts. This is the essential thing, without which there is nothing. We stand condemned. And so one of the questions to ponder today is, do we have that? Especially you young people, do you have this inward cleansing from sin which comes to you as a gift from God through your faith in Christ? Do you have this? The last thing I'm going to talk about today from this text is Abraham's um, feasting on the occasion of the weaning of Isaac. Now, why on earth would he throw a party on the day of his weaning? It's not generally a day that we celebrate. What do we naturally celebrate? We celebrate birthdays. We might celebrate a baptism. That's, That's a traditional thing to do. A dedication. We have family come into town. Why a day of weaning? Well, we don't know. Nobody I read could say for sure. But it's possible that this is just a reality that stems from high infant mortality rates. I know what you're saying. That's funny. (laughs) But I'm not going to say it publicly. Um, High infant mortality rates might be one reason the first years of a child's life are very vulnerable. Sorry to embarrass you. But that's funny. <laughs> um, the first years of a child's life are very vulnerable years. And especially before modern medicine, there was a lot of death. And so maybe they, they, the commentators, the Jewish commentators say that children were probably weaned about three years old. And maybe this just marks, it was an opportunity to mark God's faithful protection of this young child that he had given them. For whatever reason, though, Abraham throws not just a feast, but a great feast on on this day. And what does this teach us? Feasting's not bad. Parties are good. No kidding. That's what it teaches us. Parties are a good thing. Now, gluttony is bad. Drunkenness is bad. Fornication and other things that have often attended feastings and banquets are bad. They're evil. But feasting and banquets and parties are good. In fact, sadness is bad. That is, that's not what God ultimately has in store for us. That doesn't mean he doesn't give us many sorrows in this life for our good and for his own glory. But that's not the end game with God. God has a lavish banquet set for us in his kingdom that will go on for eternity. That's where we're headed. And so there should be times in our lives here on earth amidst the sadness that we party. And that we party not to get drunk, not to play the fool, 
but we party in order to celebrate what God has done and to anticipate what he will do for us in heaven. There should be times of feasting in our lives. This is one of the ways Abraham's just being a happy father, right? He's celebrating, he's making it safe for his wife to take joy and delight in her children. It's one of the ways, fathers, that you can do that. So Max Carell is a good example. The Carell family has Mercy Day every year. And Mercy Day symbolizes the great things that God has done for the Carell family in the last few years. Now, if you've been a part of this church, you know that the Carell families have had a time the last few years. But God has been so kind. And Max Abraham Carell marks that every year. It's on the calendar, Mercy Day. And they have all, all the family come over. And what are the things that they do? Ben, what do they do? Have a whole lot of food and candy. I've heard about the candy. And streamers, fireworks, confetti bombs, or something like that. And the Chinese lanterns at night, right? They go up. They're pretty. How long does it last? All day. Is that a great feast? That's a great feast. And what is its purpose? Its purpose is to instruct the whole household in the goodness and faithfulness of God. And it's great fun, I hear. I've not been invited, but I see it from afar. (laughs) We'll be neighbors soon, and I'll probably just find a way to come over that day. But fathers, there should be times like this that you lead in your home for the good of your household. Feasting is not bad. When I was a young man, younger man, coming to know the Lord and hitting Reformed doctrine, I fell prey to many, to the same tendency that it's in a lot of young men hitting Reformed doctrine, which is... To the discovery that there is like a God to be feared. That's really at the heart of Reformed doctrine, I think, that God is a God to be feared. And that's why we love him. And that's okay. And that works out. But what it produces in a lot of young men is this tendency to be, to believe that gloominess is next to godliness and that all the hymns should be dark and slow and somber. And I think you can track my own transformation, what I hope is sanctification really in my life through the music of the church over the last decade. I think it's a good transformation. It's become much more joyful. I remember Tim trying to teach me this. It was hard. He he actually grabbed, he won't like me saying this, and he claims it never happened, but he actually grabbed me by the ear one time back at the old Morton Street office. He said, Jody, we will have joy in worship this week. (laughs) And I had no idea what he meant. But it's, fathers, it's God is a, God, it's his joy that's our strength. It's not his 
gloom that is our strength. It's his joy. We should exhibit that in our households, and we should teach it through feasting, through parties. There's all kinds of wonderful things about parties. Lots of dangers, but it's basically a wonderful thing, and we should do it. Now, last thing. There is an opportunity for feasting coming up. There is a feast that's appointed for us this Easter. That's a feast day for the church. And we used to spend Easter, and I don't have anything against what we did because what we did was wonderful, but we used to spend Easter on ourselves. We used to party for ourselves and express our, our love for one another and for the Lord for us without much thinking about people outside. But remember what Jesus says when we throw parties. He says in Luke 14, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that would be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is our vision for Easter. This is our vision for Easter. We want the church to be filled with the poor, the lame, the blind. Now, they don't always look poor, lame, and blind. There's many rich people that are poor and many so evidently seeing people that are blind. But we actually would love to have, I'd prefer to have the actual poor, lame, and crippled, and blind here if we can get them. How are we going to accomplish that? Through your witness, through your inviting people to church this Easter. Easter is a natural, we, we think Easter is a natural entry point into church that's still residual in um, in the American thinking is this expectation that we'll go to church on Easter, so it's a natural inviting point an easy sell, but we have to give ourselves to the work of inviting. Pastor Tim's going to preach an evangelistic sermon. We're going to go to our homes afterwards and we're going to feast. We're going to rejoice in the Lord's resurrection and we want to have people there who do not know him, who need to hear the gospel and who can benefit from your fellowship and love. So let's fill the place and have a really great party this Easter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to change us, to mold us after your image and likeness. I pray, Father, that you would work in us those things that are pleasing in your sight and that you would glorify yourself as we here give ourselves to obedience and faith. Lord, help us this week to love you, to love our wives, to love our husbands, to love our children, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And would you give us the joy, each of us, of seeing you work through us this year and seeing someone come to know you because of our witness and love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.